never works. Let's make our way back to our chairs, and we're going to open up our Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 11. So go ahead and take a seat. All right. Well, hey, family, it is good to be here with you all. I'm excited to open the Bible with you all. Um, let me just let you know some things, uh, cool things that happened this past week. I'll let you know some cool things that happened this past week. On Friday, our Brook Youth gathered together. Uh, shout out to our Brook Youth. Can we give that to them? Our, our junior hires and high schoolers are running deep. We had a great time. Um, just keep encouraging our young people, man. They are on the front lines, and our youth gatherings are times for them to, to get emboldened in their faith. And, uh, man, we're just encouraged seeing what God was doing there this past Friday. Um, we had 17 junior hires on Friday, man. That's, that's pretty cool. So I'm uh, just excited, and our high schoolers were running deep as well, man. Just excited about that. Uh, this past Thursday morning, we hosted a breakfast for, uh, for different uh, pastoral and clergy leaders in our neighborhood, uh, put on by the alderman's office. It's kind of an interfaith gathering, but I think on Thursday, everyone who was present were believers. That's not always the case. Uh, but it's a, it's, a, it's a cool opportunity, for actually, for me and Pastor Jeremy to get to meet other pastors. Um, we know most of them already, but sometimes there's others we don't know just yet. And, um, and honestly, it's a great opportunity to rub shoulders with our alderman and, uh, and his, his team. You know, before uh, Gilbert Vegas was elected here in the 36th Ward, we got to know Gilbert through one of our game days at Bell Park. And uh, we just want to keep praying for him and his team. Uh, we know that there, there are people who know Jesus that serve there with him. And we're just praying that God would uh, just continue to point them to Jesus. And so I'm grateful for that relationship and praying that God will continue it to develop. And so I want to pray. We're going to dig into the word today. I think God has a word for us. Um, I was at a uh, preaching conference a couple months ago, and uh, one of the guys teaching said, you know what, too many oftens, often pastors go to, to their pulpit with a sermon. And I'm like, what are we supposed to go with, right? He said, we got to go not just with a sermon, but also with a burden. I thought, he's like, man, let, let me sink, let that sink in for a moment. The last thing any of us who come to this pulpit want to do is get up here and say something. We want to say something, though, that we believe God has put on our heart. And when God puts something on your heart, it's not just words, it actually becomes a burden. It's the kind of stuff that keeps you up at night, the kind of stuff that just goes through your mind and cycles through. And week in and week out, whether it's me or Pastor Jim or anyone else, we want, we want to say, God, bring a word for your people. Um, it's a word the Bible God speaks, and we just want to be faithful in representing it. And so let's pray and ask God to tell us something today and uh, to give us the ability to hear him because he's speaking. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, for today, and I thank you for my brothers and sisters here at the Brook. I thank you for those who are new uh, with us. God, I, pray, uh, I thank you for those who are coming uh, maybe just the last few weeks. God, we believe you're doing something here in our church family, and it is not to build a kingdom for us, but for your great name. Lord, we don't want to be tribalistic. God, we know there are other faithful churches doing your work, and we want to pray for them, God. We ask your blessings, God on City Lights Church. We, we pray that the gospel would advance through Belmont Assembly of God, through Bethany Baptist Church, God. 
Uh, God, we pray for Urban Rock at the Brickyard. Uh, God, we, we lift up just churches in our community, a new life community, new life covenant. And God, I, I pray that we would stand firm on the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we would faithfully preach faith and repentance for forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And I pray that we'd see each other not as competition, God. There's too much work to do. But that we would lock arms and say, Lord, have your way in us. So, Father, I pray even now as I speak that you would give us the ears to hear and the eyes to see what your Holy Spirit wants us to hear and see. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And, you know, honestly, I want to pray for one more thing. I want to pray for our brother, Angel Rodriguez. Some of you guys may or may not know Angel. Uh, he usually sits in this section. Angel's the one that gets us laughing sometimes. He'll, he'll say something uh, a lot of times out of place. He gets me laughing as I'm preaching. I'm like, come on, Angel. Um, Angel's a good brother. He's Estrella's dad. Miriam's his wife. And Angel's fighting for his life right now. Um, he, uh, he, is, he is battling every minute for his life. He took a turn for the worse in his health on Wednesday and Thursday. And um, they didn't think he'd make it to Friday. And so here we are Sunday. And, uh, he's still fighting. And it's not, it's not looking good. Um, it's hard, man, when we're confronted with death. And um, we, just, we just pray. I pray that God brings him through it. We know that in Jesus, our ultimate healing is in heaven. And so that's where our hope is at. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't pray for healing on earth. And so we're going to pray for Angel. We're going to pray for Miriam and the Molina family. And, um, yeah, let's, let's do that. Father, I, I want to lift up our brother Angel. Um, Lord, I, I pray that the gospel he's heard here week in and week out would be the confidence that he hangs his life on right now. God, I pray that the doctors, the physicians at UIC would have great wisdom, Lord, to know how to help him. I pray that you would keep the family unified. God, I pray that Miriam would have your peace, that Estrella and Eddie and, and, and Megan and Matthew and Michael would have peace. Um, and Lord, I just pray that you would heal his body. I pray that he would come back and be able to worship with us here. Oh, Lord. And help us just trust God, your will, and say, let it be done. In Jesus' name, amen. Squirrels are interesting creatures, aren't they? <laughs> they, they got a way of distracting all kinds of people and things. I mean, just yesterday, we had people over the house, and someone was like, hey, that's a black squirrel on your tree. This is interesting, because, you know, we talk about the movie Up, and you think of dogs and the squirrel moment, you know, or cats chase squirrels. You know, cats actually have a tendency of chasing squirrels even up trees, and you ever heard of cats getting stuck in a tree, and they tell you, call the fire department? Uh, I was reading about this online, they're saying, don't do that, because the fire department won't come. They've got kind of bigger things to worry about than, than saving cats. But the reason that cats are so, uh, that squirrels are so enticing to cats is their bushy tails are a distraction to them. They're, just, they're seeing these bushy tails, and the cats go after them, and they get up that tree. And what happens is the squirrels are pretty agile on the tree, and the cats are less agile. So they're jumping from limb to limb, trying to chase something they're not going to be able to get. And then the squirrel gets away. You know where the cat is stuck? In the tree. The cat's curiosity is probably going to kill them. As you've heard the slogan, curiosity kills the cat. Cats do this instinctually. 
They, they, they chase things like a furry tail because it distracts them, catches their eye, and they go after it. But what happens to cats often happens to us when we, by our instinct, and we'll talk about that in a moment, go after things that distract us. We end up following and chasing things, and then when it gets away, we look around saying, how did I get we're looking around saying, I can't get down from this on my own. Or maybe I'm in a pit that I can't quite climb out of. And what happened to the cat happens to us. And it's not merely our human instinct, but it's what the Bible calls our sin nature. See, we've got to not sugarcoat the truth. And the truth is that you and I are born in sin. Sin is a missing of God's target. It is a failing to obey God in our actions, in our words, in our thoughts. Sin permeates our being. It's who we are from our birth. And our sin has separated us from God relationally and from others. And what happens in our lives, because sin is in our nature, we end up chasing things that we perceive to be good and delightful when really these things are destructive and harmful. Our sin nature leads us onto treacherous trails, doesn't it? It puts us in poisonous predicaments. It leads us into compromising conditions. Our sin nature causes us to chase after things and ask, how did I get here? Family, we all have the capacity to drift into the most darkest of pits. I'm going to say this again. You, I'm going to do some eye contact here, have the capacity for all kinds of evil. And it's important for us then in those moments to ask, how did I get here? Now, some of you might have taken an Uber to get here today. Some of you walked, some of you drove, some of you took the train, public transportation. So I'm not, I'm not talking how you get here, here. I'm not talking necessarily even about how did you get to this point in life, but I want you to begin to think about the choices that you've made, even the wrong and sinful ones, that have gotten you to the place where you're at in life. And just as we do that, we also not only need to ask, how did I get here, but also how do I get out, which I hope then will lead us to who can get me out. Because the answer is not you or the person next to you. So your failures of yesterday can be met with forgiveness today, but that forgiveness has to come through one, and that's Jesus. Today we're going to talk about King David as we've gone through, gone through the life of David. And David's going to come to a place in his life where he's got to ask himself, how did I get here? Now there's little to not like about King David. We've talked a lot about him. I mean, I'm a fan. All right, the way he took down Goliath with that kind of youthful, you know, zeal and passion. He runs to the giant with rocks in his hands and takes down this warrior. I mean, what's not to like about David? David wrote the Psalms, like our favorite one, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not what? Want. David's the one who said, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. Those are David's words in Psalm 23. It's David whose ancestors would lead to the Messiah, Jesus Christ himself. 
I mean, after all, David is the one that God said he is a man after my own heart. What's not to like about David? Well, David doesn't necessarily have a squeaky clean rap sheet either. In fact, we've seen in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel where his anger outbursts have led him to some predicaments. And we didn't get a chance to preach on this passage, but his soon-to-be wife, Abigail, really bailed him out. David also actually had more than Abigail as a wife. He had multiple wives. It was a common practice accepted of kings and others in those days, even though it was not, and it never has been accepted by God. But David went with what was a cultural practice. David wasn't squeaky clean. And as we're looking today, we're going to take a look at probably one of his greatest and grandest failures. A point in his life when temptation led to sin and sin led to death. It's the kind of thing in David's life where we're saying, is this the same David I read about the chapter before? The answer is yes, just as we can be the same people who we were a day ago, doing something right before God, the next day, find ourselves falling into sin, right? What we see is actually when David bleeds, it's the color red, like you and I bleed red. So today we're going to look at 2 Samuel chapter 11, Would you stand to your feet and meet me there as I read the opening five verses? Um, Hey, if you didn't come with the Bible today, we would love for you to have the the blue one in the chair in front of you. The Bible is God's Word. And we're going to be on page 262 in that blue chair Bible. Or you can meet me in your own Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. This is what God's Word says. Verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman, not just beautiful, but the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. Can you say took her? Took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness, and then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. And she sent and told David these ominous three words, I am this, indeed, is God's word. You may be seated. Some of you guys are like, what just happened? We're told in verse 1, it's the time when kings go out to war. It's the time when battles take place. The weather turns better, and people are more eager to try to take land, take possession of different properties, and others then stand 
Pack to defend them. In chapter 10, we didn't cover this, David began a war with a people called the Ammonites, and he had some unfinished business with them. And we're told in chapter 2, he tells Joab, his most trusted warrior, Joab is a gangster, all right? If you read First and Second Samuel, Joab is always the one at the front lines. Joab is a mighty warrior. He's David's right-hand man. And he tells Joab to take the soldiers, go out to the Ammonites, defeat them. But in order to do that, they had to go to this city called Rabbah. Rabbah was a fortified city. It was the stronghold for the Ammonites. And so David's men were out there fighting this war against the Ammonites. We're told then, at the end of verse 1, with a contrasting conjunction, the word but. But what? But David remained at Jerusalem. Now it's interesting the way the writer lays this out. The time when kings go off to war, dot, 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 but David went, stood in Jerusalem. Let's look at the shorthand of what the writer's trying to tell us. David was supposed to be over there, but he was actually over here. Now, some commentators are saying, you know, we're looking a little too much into this. You know, it wasn't the king's practice to always go off to war. That's true. However, the narrator is going through pains in the first verse alone to let us know this is not okay. If we had time to look, we'd see a few chapters later, Joab's like, hey, David, get your butt over here right now because we're about to win this war. And if you don't come, I'm going to take this city and name it after me. So clearly, this was something that David ought to have been doing but wasn't doing. Maybe in the eyes of some it might have been okay, but the narrator is saying things aren't okay. In verse 2, it happened late one afternoon. When David arose from his couch, he was walking on the roof. He was just minding his own business. When on his rooftop, from his rooftop, he looks over the city of Jerusalem and happens to see a woman. Not just any woman, but a very beautiful woman. Not just a very beautiful woman, but a very beautiful woman bathing. And there David is on the rooftop with a choice to make. What's he going to do? Well, we would say, David, run away. Look away. Don't you remember uh, Genesis 39, Joseph? When Potiphar's wife grabbed him by the robe, what did Joseph do? David, he ran. David, run! Right? But that's not what David does. See, his noticing took a turn for the worse. David let his mind take the next step beyond noticing attractiveness or stumbling upon nakedness even. But then it says, David sent and inquired about the woman. You see, family, when we're confronted with temptation in our lives, we've got a choice to make. Do we proceed in following this trap, or do we flee from it? I find it so remarkable that the writer says David inquired about her by sending messengers. Because just a few chapters earlier, we saw how David did a lot of inquiring, and he did it with God. In fact, it's a common statement. David inquired of the Lord. David inquired of the Lord. David inquired of the Lord. And here we come to chapter 11. David inquired of the messengers about the woman that he saw bathing naked. David 
had already begun to let his guard down. See, noticing turns into lust when we linger there. David, don't click. David, don't watch. David, don't search that name on Facebook. David, don't ask for the number. Don't return a smile for a flirtatious smile. Don't go back to there. Don't replay it in your mind. Don't fantasize about it. David, you got a choice to make right here. And he inquires. Now, when I was a kid playing football, and some of you who like football know this, when, when a team is on fourth down, they got a lot of yards to go, they're going to punt the football. When you punt a football, the other team can receive it and begin to run. Or if it's in, it comes down in an adverse place, the team will let it drop typically and get away from the ball. However, if one of their teammates accidentally touches the ball, it becomes a live ball. And then the other team who punted it originally can recover it. And when I was a kid, our coach taught us, and every team has some sort of word. When that ball comes down and you're not able to catch it, you got to yell fire so all your teammates run away from the ball. Because if that ball takes a bounce and catches them, it's a live ball. The ball has just dropped in David's roof, and we've got to yell, fire. Family, every day you are confronted with opportunity to lust over someone or to let your heart begin to romanticize or fantasize about someone. All of us in this room are confronted with that every day. Nobody in this room is exempt. Can I say this again? Not a single one of us is exempt. And in those moments, when our mind takes a detour, hear the word fire and run away. David's messengers come back. And they said to him, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? Now, this description alone is crazy. And in fact, even the way they word it is not this, as in, hey, you probably might know her, David. Maybe he didn't, but kind of like, David, this is, pretty, this is actually pretty close to you. Because that's Eliam's daughter. Well, who's Eliam? Well, if we look later in the, books of, uh, in the book of uh, uh, 2 Samuel, we find that Eliam's actually one of David's soldiers. This is one of his soldiers' daughter. Well, guess what? Eliam's father is a guy named Ahithophel. Ahithophel is David's most trusted advisor. So Bathsheba's grandpa is David's most trusted advisor. Her dad is David's soldier. And who's her husband? But Uriah the Hittites. Hittites were not Jews by ethnicity. So Uriah then linked himself up with the people of God, likely as a God-fearing man, forsaking his own people to lay his life on the line for God's people. In fact, where's Uriah at this moment? He's fighting a battle for God and his people. To up the ante, David and his men were known to, have, to be fierce warriors. And David was known to have what he, we call mighty men in the scriptures. 30 men who were the most elite of the soldiers. The kind of men who helped establish David's reign as king of Israel. And guess what? Uriah is one of those mighty men. We read of the mighty men in 1 Chronicles 11. Now these are the chiefs of David's mighty men 
who gave him strong support in his kingdom together with Israel to make him king. David, is this not Bathsheba? That's Ahithophel's granddaughter. That's Eliam's daughter. That's Uriah's wife. These are warning signs. This is God saying, fire, David. Warning. But David doesn't hear it. We've got to understand something. See, when we ask the question, how did I get here? What we can't say is, God, why didn't you stop? See, God is faithful to bind our wandering heart to thee, as the hymn says. But we are the ones who become so dull of hearing. When God's Holy Spirit is saying, hey, don't go there, David. These are warnings. Don't you go there, brother. Don't you go there, sister. God is the one who's pleading with you to pump the brakes. See, God will faithfully alert our wandering heart. We just have to be able to hear him do it. David and his lust burned so deep that he ignored the very God he'd been worshiping a few chapters earlier when the Ark of the Covenant came into Jerusalem. David quenched the Holy Spirit as we do when we cut out godly counsel, when we ignore the warning side, when we say our, let our pride say, hey, I deserve this, actually. Just this one time, I de- I've been working hard lately. I've been putting in a lot of hours. Just, I get one peak, don't I? No, you don't. I'm not getting love. No, no, you don't deserve this. Don't go there. Our arrogance tells us we know better than God. And David says, took her. He took her. It's like he stole her. And he lay with her. We're given this parenthetical statement. Now she was, it says, purifying herself from her uncleanness. The Mosaic law, the law of the Old Testament says that after a woman's menstrual cycle, there was a period of cleansing that took place. Likely it was about seven days long from the time the menstrual cycle ends, which means Bathsheba's fertile. And she gives David the news in verse 5, I'm pregnant. David is now hit and confronted with something that's going to be really difficult for him. How did David get here? You know, the book of James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, give us kind of a snapshot of what took place here. I want to put this verse on the screen here, James 1, 14 and 15. James says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, what? Brings forth death. You see, that point of temptation we are all going to face. Being tempted is not a sin in and of itself. We're human beings. God doesn't tempt us because temptation can lead to sin. God does test our faith, but God doesn't tempt us. We are tempted when our sin nature, which we mentioned earlier, is appealed to. And at those moments of temptation, we have a choice. We can resist it and follow the Lord. We can repent and say, God, keep this thing away from me. Or we can get, as what James says, lured in. It's a fishing analogy. The bait is on the hook. Fishermen will tell you that some fish are attracted to the shiny object in the water. Some like the lure that is moving like a worm, so it's, it's moving around so the fish thinks it's real food. 
I don't know what kind of lure entices you. I hope you know what kind of lure entices you. What are the shiny objects that cause your passions to arise? What are the bushy tails, the moving objects? James says that when we allow ourselves to be lured in and enticed by our own desires, that's going to conceive and give birth to sin. And when sin goes unchecked, it will lead to our death. Sin alone separates us from God, which means eternal death. But sin will also lead us oftentimes to physical death if we don't stop and turn to God. When David needs to ask, when he asks, how did I get here? The question is, the answer is, David, you were tempted. You allowed yourself to get lured in. You then sin, and now sin is giving birth to death. Family, we've got to prepare ourselves. Yesterday, I ran my first ever Spartan race. I had some uh, Brook family with me. Uh, some of them were veterans. They've got the patches. They've got the stripes. I'm a rookie. And as I signed up for this thing, or as I should say, as they signed me up, um, I began to train because I'm intimidated. I'm, a, I'm an athlete. I like to run. But I've never done a Spartan race with 20 obstacles. I've never thrown a spear before. I never climbed a rope. So I began to YouTube how to do this. Everything on YouTube works. I had to learn the different strategies, the, the different ways, the, 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 uh, the mechanics of some of these things. And sure enough, it really actually helped because I prepared for the race. I prepared for the obstacles. And the others who had done it before came alongside and said, hey, this is how you do this. You take a spear. You got to balance it in your hand. Don't hold it to the front or to the back. Let it balance. Grip it. Pull it back. Let it go evenly. You'll get the target. It worked. Family, the, the Christian life is similar. You will be confronted with obstacles. It's not a matter of if, but when. And it's not just a matter of one, but 20. And you can't do it on your own. You need to come before your heavenly father saying, God, build up my faith. God, help me resist my lustful passions. God, I pray that you would equip me right now in my prayer closet so that when I go out and I'm tempted to look at pornography, and I'm tempted to look at that woman or that man or talk to that person, that I'm equipped, God, by your word to resist it. And then there are others who've gone down these paths, who've walked this Christian life, who are veterans, and say, hey, this is how you do it. That's called discipleship. Say, hey, this is how you walk by the power of the Spirit. And when you fail, this is what you do. You repent. You repent quickly. What would David do? When Bathsheba said, I'm pregnant. Well, we're told in verse 8 that David sends word to Joab at the front lines and summons Uriah. And we might be wondering, is he going to confess to Uriah? Is he going to come clean like, man, dude, man to man? We're told this in verse 7. When Uriah came to him, which, by the way, was a 40-mile journey from Rabbah to Jerusalem, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. I think this is kind of funny because Uriah is probably thinking like, you summoned me 40 miles. I'm one of your elite soldiers. I'm pretty valuable on the front lines. And you summoned me these 40 miles to ask me how things are going. 
You could have one of the youth who are the runners run back and forth for that information. David pretends to be concerned about the war when really he's concerned about his own problem right now. David asks him these questions, and then David said to Uriah, Now, Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet. That's a euphemism for, Uriah, get comfortable. Go home with your wife. Get under the sheets. Uriah, go home. In David's mind, this is the perfect cover. Should Uriah lay with his wife, then she's pregnant, no harm, no foul in David's mind. But the problem with David, actually before I go there, David actually ups the ante, and it says, Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. David's like, I'm going to make this especially nice for you. Uriah, I'm, I'm going to send you uh, some food. I'm going to wine and dine you right now. You're probably going to go home with some filet mignon, some chardonnay, go with your wife, have a nice meal, you know, enjoy yourselves. But what David didn't count was who Uriah himself was. I mentioned Uriah is a Hittite, not a Jewish man. But Uriah is the man who is fighting on the front lines for God and his people. Therefore, we learn Uriah is actually a man of profound character. It says in verse 9, But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. That takes self-control and that takes conviction. David shows up the next day and is like, Uriah, what are you doing? What, what are you doing at my doorsteps? You've been off to war a long time. I know you miss your wife. Go home, man. Get comfortable. Uriah tells him this. He says uh, there in verse 11, the ark, he said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. Those are tents. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in open fields. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lay with my, my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Your eyes like, look, I'm a soldier. I've taken a soldier's vow. We abstain from relations when we're out to war because we are focused on God and his task. My brothers are on the front line sleeping in fields. Our backup is intense. Your commander is there with me, with us. And you want me to come home and want to dine with my wife? See, he's like, me, wine and dine and lay? No, I won't do it. It's an emphatic statement, and David is now in a pinch. He says, all right, go, go, come back the next day and we find out David creates another strategy. It says in verse 12, David said to Uriah, remain here today and also tomorrow and I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. David's like, if you won't do this in your sensibilities, I'm going to make you insensible. I'm going to cause you 
to, be, to, to lose proper judgment. I'm going to impair your judgment with some alcohol. And David's hope is that Uriah's lust and his desires would win over his own convictions and principles. But we're told that in the evening he went out and to lie, not with his wife, but on his couch, with the servants of, his, of the Lord. But he did not go to his house. No doubt, in David's ear is echoing, I will never do this thing. David is now in a predicament. He won't go with his wife when he's in his right state of mind. And he won't go to his wife when he's drunk. So if I can't cover this up, I've got to remove him. Getting comfortable wouldn't do it. Getting drunk won't do it. Let me get him out. We see in verse 14 in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Uriah is taking to Joab his very own death sentence. Joab follows through on the commands. Uriah is killed. Other men lose their lives. Word gets back to David about the fighting, that a lot of lives were lost, but that Uriah was also lost. And David's like, tell Joab to be of good courage, keep fighting. Battles, you know, people die in battles. And then we're told here, verse 26, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. David's like, I'm free, y'all. I covered it up. Ain't nobody know. Just me and Bathsheba. This undoubtedly is David's mindset. She gave birth to a son, which tells us how much passed at least. Nine months. David is free for nine months. But though others didn't see, someone always does. The end of verse 27. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Family, God always sees us. And I hope that's a motivation for holiness. Not not just the fear of God's going to strike me, but saying, God, I just, I want to live for you. I want to please you. David's good. He thinks he's good. Baby born. He's got a son. But then God now intervenes into the situation. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan's a prophet. And he came to him and said this in chapter 12, verse 1. He tells him a story. I'm going to read this just to get it in front of us and go through it real quick after that. There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and grew it up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsels and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Basically, this is the story. Nathan's like, hey, David, I got to tell you something that happened. There's a guy, he owns one little sheep, and there's a guy who owns a lot of them. The guy who owns a lot of them, the rich guy, he has a visitor come in town. He doesn't want to prepare his own sheep for a meal, so he takes his other guy's one sheep, that one that he raised like a daughter to him. 
he slaughters it and prepares it as a meat. That's pretty mean, right? David says this in verse 8. It says, Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. That's cruel to take something that wasn't your own, that someone else loved. What a terrible thing to do. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan says in verse 7, you are the man. God tells him, I, in verse 7, anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would have added to you more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? God's telling David, David, you had everything you wanted. If you wanted more, you should have just asked me. But you were not content. And you did this thing. You struck down Uriah, he says there. You struck down Uriah. Basically, God's like, David, you don't get a free pass here. It wasn't your sword that put him to death, but it might as well have been. Your hands are filled with blood, though it was the Ammonites that killed him. And basically what Nathan goes on to say, as a result, David, you will be punished. There will be war in your household. Those from within your household will rise up against you. And ultimately, this child who has been born will die. We're told in verse 13, David's response. It's simple, but it's important. It's the kind of response that you and I need to take when we find ourselves having been lured, enticed, and giving birth to sin. David says, I have sinned against the Lord. No excuses. It's not like, but, but she, was, she was out there outside. No. No dodging. Shut up and repent. We'll learn more about David's response next Sunday from Psalm 51. But family, here, here's something important for us. Th- these passages, are, I, I'm going to admit here, is extremely uncomfortable. Because in David's story, we see ourselves. We've all made choices that have led us to a place where we look back and say, how did I get here? We've chased shiny objects. We've chased bushy tails. We've chased our lustful passions, our greedy hearts, our covetousness. In one chapter, David breaks three of the Ten Commandments. He covets his neighbor's wife, he commits adultery, and he commits murder. Here David is looking at God and says, I've sinned. And this is what God replies. The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. This is, this is, this is remarkable. We've got to hear this. In the Old Testament law, the, the penalty for adultery was to be stoned. In the Old Testament law, the penalty for murder was to be stoned. Here, David carrying both in each hand, and God says, you shall not die, your sins are forgiven. 
How do we explain that? How do we explain when someone, you or I, are dead in our sin, the blood in our hands, the guilt upon us, and God would say, you won't die, you are forgiven. The way that happens is because God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Yeah, there's consequences to our sin. That happens. There's consequences. And some of us have eaten the fruit and we're, we're, we're living those consequences. But I need you to know today that if you've been lured in, you need to know there is forgiveness for you. You're not too far from God. And if you're on the threshold of stepping into that place, pull back, fire, run away. God is gracious, but don't presume on his graciousness. See, the way God is able to step in for us when we are so guilty is because David has a son who has a son who has a son who would be a king. And his name is Jesus. And Jesus would bring himself a bride. That bride couldn't cleanse herself of her own impurities. And David, he didn't just send messengers to get the bride. I mean, God didn't just send messengers to get his bride. God came down to get his bride. God came down as a man, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who on the cross took our covetousness, took our adultery, took our lustful hearts, took our gossip, took our murderous thoughts and actions. He says, on the cross, they've been forgiven when you put your faith in Jesus. The wrath of God that you deserve, the death penalty that was hanging over your head was satisfied. At the cross, Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because at that point, your sin went on him. But Jesus also said, it is finished. Three days later, he would rise from the dead so that when we turn from our sin and turn to him, his perfection clothes us so that when our Father sees us, he sees the righteousness of his blessed Son, Jesus, and not your failure. We serve a God who is great. And David is experiencing it in the most greatest of his gift. And you can too. Family, we all have the capacity to drift. All of us. Our sin nature will lead us down treacherous trails, put us in poisonous predicaments, and ultimately, ultimately lead us in compromising conditions. But your failures of yesterday can be met with forgiveness today if you would turn to Jesus. There is hope for us when we ask, how did I get here? We got to know how we got here as I said to start out with, we got to know who is going to get us out. When a cat gets up that tree and you can't get it down, when I was reading online, what they tell you you got to do is go up and get it yourself. When you are dead in your sins and you can't get out, what has God done? But gone down to get you himself. Turn to him. Rest in him. He is good. 
He is forgiving. He'll bring hope for you, family. Let's pray. God, I know there's so much more that could be said right now. God, I know there are, there, there are gaps to fill here because many of us have experienced pain and consequences and we're living in it. We have so much regret. But God, I just pray for that one who's here right now with just so much regret and just is so angry at themselves. I pray, Lord, that their regret would give way to freedom, Lord. That you would just say, come, come to me, that they would come to you, Lord. And that you would then show them how to walk and navigate the consequences that they have. But they would say, Lord, I know that there is is struggle in my life, but I know you're with me. God, for that that brother or sister who just doesn't know how to navigate that, I pray and I plead, Lord, they would reach out to someone, Lord, saying, "Would would you help me know how to navigate that? For that one who's been hiding their sin as David did for nine months, Lord, you know. I pray it wouldn't take a Nathan confronting, but they would just say, God, I'm sorry. Forgive me. My sin is ever before me. Forgive me. Lord, I also thank you that there was nothing David could do to earn this. And Lord, I pray that we would say, God, I I can't earn your forgiveness. I can't earn salvation. I just need you. And so, Lord, I pray that we would just raise our white flag, surrender, have your way with me. Oh, God, do it, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand to our feet, family. Prayer team, would you make yourself available as we sing this closing song? Our prayer counselors are here because they want to pray with you. They, they, they want you to know that you're not alone. And they're going to intercede. They're going to stand in that gap, maybe even when you don't know what to say. God has equipped these brothers and sisters. They're not perfect, but he's equipped them. Just pray on your behalf. So, man, enjoy, enjoy that gift that God has offered today. So let's sing. Let's sing with a heart of repentance. Let's sing with a heart of gratitude. And say, Lord, make me whole. Heal me, oh God. Father in heaven, these words are the cry of our heart, Lord. Now we say we want nothing else. Is we know that life and salvation is found in you, Jesus. God, we, we just want you, oh Lord, to cleanse us, to, to strengthen us, to make us whole, to make us the men and women, to make us the youth that you want us to be, God. Thank you, God, for just giving us the clarity of vision this morning. We pray that we would go out today with that same boldness, saying, Lord, have your way with me, Lord. Make me new. Use me, God. So, Father, I pray you would guide our steps. In Jesus' name, amen. I just want to leave you with this blessing from Zephaniah 3.17, which says, Lord, your God is with you, and he is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you, He will quiet you with his love, and he will rejoice over you with singing. God bless you, Brooke family. Our God is with you to go out in his grace and his strength. 
Please join us downstairs for refreshments. We'll see you down there.